It's The Healthy Woman Show on WJR with Marie Osborne and Dr. Jonathan Zaden. Presented by Women's Excellence. Now here's your host, Marie Osborne. And welcome into the May edition of The Healthy Woman Show. I'm Marie Osborne with Dr. Jonathan Zaden of Women's Excellence. May is Mental Health Awareness Month. So we're going to be touching on some tips to improve your mental health and how they can help you at Women's Excellence. Dr. Zaden? And it's also summer coming up. So we thought that we would do uh, some pregnancy managing uh, your pregnancy in the hot summer months kind of segment. I think you're going to really get a lot out of that. We have a midwife on, Laura Smuts to talk about that so you know and then of course there's the ask the doc segment uh, that uh, I, I hear is going to be interesting uh, this month and we're going to be also chatting dr zayden don't forget about using your health care benefits it's time to start planning i know you're always reminding us about that so stay with us here on the healthy woman show back here on the Healthy Woman Show on WJR with Dr. Jonathan Zayden with Women's Excellence. Dr. Zayden, Mental Health Awareness Month is the month of May. And I know that's a very important topic for you, even though you are a practice that deals with uh, gynecology and obstetrics. Mental health is extremely important to the women who come into your practice and making sure they maintain their mental health. I think everything starts with mental health, right? So You can't really take care of a a full compendium of disease processes like we do at at Women's Excellence unless you, you know, completely manage, um, you know, their mental side as well. Because, you know, when it comes to weight loss, if it comes to, you know, bladder control, those two topics right off the top of my head, weight loss, I mean, a lot of it is in, in the mental health arena, right? I mean, you know, confidence and so on and so forth. And then even with bladder control, people will avoid getting care because of embarrassment. So, you know, these are things that, you know, you have to kind of incorporate the mental with the physical. And, and that's when you do your best. And, and, you know, I think it's great that it is this month because I sense that we're turning the corner a little bit with the COVID. And I think that's such an important factor right now because people have really been, you know, cooped up like we've talked on the show for you know, over a year now, it's been 14 months. I think there's some light at the end of the tunnel. We're starting to see high-ranking politicians that are saying we're going to lift up some of the restrictions. And I think that's going to be, you know, very helpful. The problem is, and then what I'm seeing is that, you know, some of the mental health is, is deteriorated. And when I say that, you know, people that are normally happy now have things like mild dysthymia or mild depression, right? And people who, you know, often you know, may have exhibited signs of depression before are in more of a severe depression. And many of them have forgotten how to get back to where they were. You know, I mean, they're, they're, they've just forgotten how to do it because for 14 months, they've been afraid, they've been scared, and they've been isolated. And so, you know, I think that, you know, in the summer, it's very important that we actually address these issues. And Dr. Zayden, I know that in the summer, it some things are a little easier for our mental health. I know that you stay, that you always say, stay active, get outside. I mean, look, we're looking at more sunshine in the summer, right? So it's an easier thing to do. Well, absolutely. And, and you know, uh, you know, we all see these lights, you know, these bright daylight LED lights that they sell, right, to, to try to help with seasonal affective disorder, right? I think we all probably experience a little seasonal affective disorder. So it's important that we use those, uh, you know, we use 
um, our time, those months during the summer when we have this increased light to really, you know, perk ourselves up. I see it in the office um, when we have had gray days for a long time, even in the winter, and people drive in and it's sunny, their mood is significantly different. And so, you know, my whole thought process is, you know, do as much as you can outside, enjoy nature, enjoy mother nature, you know, fix find some goals that you want to do because you're going to be able to go back to doing more of your normal activities. And those goals could, you know, they're going to be personalized to you, but make sure you're focusing on your strengths. You're focusing on solving a problem that keeps you, you know, focused mentally in order to kind of keep, keep things moving along in your brain and not ruminate about all the things that can be negative. And unfortunately, you know, I hate to say this, but the more time we, we spend in front of media, um, even though we're on media today, um, you know, the, it's, it, it is somewhat of a negative uh, uh, venue to kind of spend your time. And, and what, I would, what I would tell you is that, you know, focus on your life. Instead of focusing on all the bad stuff, focus on what you can do in your life and make sure that you're taking care of yourself. When you're outside, you have a tendency to want to exercise more. You have a tendency to want to, you know, uh, you know, feel healthier, do more activities, you know, practice good hygiene. You know, one of my patients that, that you know, uh, would come in and, and she, you know, would tell me, she said, well, uh, you know, I feel I'm feeling pretty good today. But she had a really bad, uh, real depression with an underlying exacerbation of of uh, premenstrual syndrome. And so she would always come in dressed up. And I noticed that I could tell when she was, you know, very, very hygienic and she had her hair done and all that, she was in a better phase than she was otherwise. And I asked her one time, I said, you know, I go, I kind of wonder how that works. She says, when I, you know, even when I'm down sometimes, it really it picks me up if I, if I do myself up a little bit, I do my makeup, and, you know, I'm wearing the clothes that I really like. And I think that's something that people really need to focus on. You know, this is a month where we can finally get outside. We can finally do some things. So take care of yourself. Pick some goals that you want to accomplish this summer. And, and most importantly, try to get outside as much as you can. Get that light, cure that seasonal affective disorder and feel better. Self-care, very important. Obviously, the message, Dr. Jonathan Zayden. And of course, women's excellence can help. So if you have any question, you can certainly get a hold of Dr. Zayden. When we get back here on The Healthy Woman Show, we're going to talk a little bit about giving birth. Summer is a big month for having babies. And of course, that's Dr. Jonathan Zayden's strong suit. We'll talk about it when we come back here on WJR. Welcome back to the Healthy Woman Show here on WJR. We're coming up on the most common birth months, August through September. So that means that many women are in the final stretch of that pregnancy during, guess what, the hot summer months. So I'm sure that that can sometimes be uncomfortable and frankly, unenjoyable for a lot of women. We have Laura Smuts joining us for this segment. She's a certified nurse midwife from Women's Excellence. Welcome to the show, Laura. We're going to bring you in on the discussion in just a couple of minutes. She's going to talk a little bit about the ways to stay comfortable and cool during pregnancy in the summer months. First, though, let's remind our listeners on the midwifery program that Women Excellence offers. Dr. Zayden, the term midwife is usually associated with prenatal care in the past, 
but it's something that our ancestors, of course, used during pregnancy. But now midwives are gaining more and more popularity. Why do you think that is? Well, I think it's because, you know, initially midwives were going to the home and delivering babies. Right? So they were, you know, kind of on call and they were needed by the community, right? They needed to have people, uh, you know, one doctor in a community, you know, medical care was somewhat rationed. There was only so many medical schools, only so much training. One doctor in a community couldn't be doing everything every, every hour of the day. So midwives were, you know, kind of specialized in, in birth, you know, normal type births. And, and they, you know, in many cases, you know, dominated that field for a long, long time. And then, you know, we got to the point where we started to, you know, do more services in hospitals. And, and as a result of that, we've, you know, credentialed midwives. And I think that at Women's Excellence, we looked at midwifery as we have these skilled, you know, professionals and we have doctors and what, what's the difference, you know, in the care and how do we delineate that care and how do we give people that are low risk a very warm concierge type feeling. And that's why we developed midwifery at Women's Excellence. People can get, you know, one-on-one care and, you know, they're assigned to them. And so, you know, they may have a couple of people in labor, but they're assigned that whole day to the labor and delivery to take care of them. And it's more of a family type atmosphere. I'm sure Laura can, you know, chime in on this, but I mean, I think we're, our goal is to, is to have that patient as part of our family and then, and then take care of them the way we would take care of our own sister or mother or anyone else. And, and just a moment ago, we, we uh, introduced uh, Laura Smuts. She's a certified nurse midwife. So Laura, what is the midwifery difference? Yep. So one of the main differences that um, our clients see is that we are allotted a little bit longer than you would in a typical um, physician visit in an office. So we have more time with these mothers throughout their prenatal care to really develop and foster a relationship with them. Um, so by the time um, they're in labor, they really feel like they know us and are comfortable with, with any of the midwives that will be caring, caring for them. So throughout their prenatal care, we're really um, partnering with them to educate them and empowering women to kind of take ownership of their health and of their pregnancy. Um, so I think that's why a lot of women now are um, kind of um, leaning towards the midwifery model, um, because they do want to feel empowered and um, make decisions about their health care. So we kind of help them to do that. So Laura, why don't you talk a little bit about what it's like to be pregnant in the summer months? We're talking about those being the most popular months to have babies, uh, August through September, but they're also the hottest months. And I know when you're pregnant, you feel like a furnace most of the time anyway. So can we give some tips here for our uh, pregnant moms who might be listening on how they can stay comfortable? Yep, of course. I can talk about this professionally and personally as both my daughters are September babies. So I have a lot of experience being pregnant in the summer. Um, yep, being pregnant does make mothers more susceptible to the effects of heat and dehydration. So one of the main things is really pushing the fluids. So, you know, women to drink at least 80 ounces of fluids a day, lots of water, coconut water, something with electrolytes in it. Um, trying to get rest in those middle warm, extra hot hours of the day. Um, if they are going to have a lot of activity outside, kind of trying to focus on the early morning hours or late afternoon so that you're not kind of in the, the midst of that heat. Um, another complaint often is increased skin sensitivity and sunburn. So just making sure that um, women are wearing at least like an SPF 30 and reapplying multiple times throughout the day just to avoid any, any sunburn during pregnancy as well. 
Um, in terms of comfort measures, um, we're going to avoid um, a lot of extra salt in our diet, things that cause water retention. So focusing on food as well, that's high in fluids. So things like watermelon or cucumber is kind of more refreshing, cooling foods during that time as well. Um, and of course, going for a, you know, a dip in a pool and a little float, that's always quite nice and helpful as well. Did I hear you say 80 ounces of fluids? 80 ounces of water. That's kind of the goal there. Wow. All right. That's a big container, Marie. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, Dr. Zayden, you want to chime in? Any thoughts and ideas? What, what are the moms saying to you when they come in during these hot summer months? Well, I mean, the, the biggest thing is, right, is to not feel like you just want to be done because everybody always feels like they want to be done. And the way to do that is to control their own health. And Laura summarized that pretty well and that anything you can do to keep yourself hydrated and keep yourself from getting edematous will, will help. So you don't want to get a lot of swelling, you know, everywhere because that just kind of slows you down and the heat makes that worse. Um, the other thing is, is that, you know, she touched base on sunscreen, you know, Pregnancy increases melanocyte-stimulating hormones, so you just have to protect yourself from the sun in pregnancy. You know, you get people out, and if they're doing well, they're, they, they want to get that sun. We just told everybody to be outside. You can be outside, but definitely use that, that SPF, you know, that 30, 30 or above SPF. We had uh, Wendy McFalda on this show, a dermatologist from Clarkston, uh, you know, about a year ago, and she talked all about that. Um, and if you want to know what, uh, you know, how to protect your skin, I thought she did a really great summary. I'm sure it's on one of our previous podcasts. So, you know, um, those are, I think the main things I think our, our moms just want to stay comfortable and, and they just need to know to stay out of the heat and, uh, and loose clothing, you know, take naps, you know, I mean, you know, take naps in air conditioned areas, you know, those types of things I think will help. And uh, Laura Smuts is a certified nurse midwife talking a little more about the gaining in popularity of using midwives during the birth process. And Laura, can we talk a little bit about who is it that works best with a midwife? If we're, uh, if, if a woman is newly pregnant and she's trying to make that decision, what are some of the things that you can suggest to her to make that decision that you'd, you know, you'd really prefer to go with a midwife or uh, through most of your labor and delivery? How does that, do I have a choice? How does that work? Yep. So when moms come to see us, um, we our model is to see all women during pregnancy. So an initial visit will be with a midwife. We would identify any risk factors that might require more physician involvement for a pregnancy. But most women are able to have a midwife in some part, if not all of their prenatal care. So we really are, you know, open to all women and making sure that, you know, the safest um, provider is going to be the one who's going to be with you for your pregnancy based on your specific needs. And I can also imagine that it's also a time when you can set up a great relationship with your, your moms to be, I'm sure. Oh yeah, definitely. You know, regardless of any risk factors, one of our main goals as midwives is to take kind of the fear out of pregnancy and childbirth and emphasize the normalcy of these experience experiences, no matter how low risk or high risk your pregnancy may be. And I have to say, Marie, you know, Laura is our, our, you know, basically our midwife coordinator. And she just does a phenomenal job, not only keeping everybody in the right spots at the right times, but, you know, we constantly are bringing out new programs and so forth that, that she kind of fosters. But, uh, but also keeping the team together, you know. I mean, the biggest thing is that if, if, if everybody's aligned with the same goal, 
And you heard those goals by Laura, you know, I mean, they, they want people to have a, a great experience. And if everybody's aligned with that goal, and I can tell you that all the midwives at, at Women's Excellence, whenever I talk to them, they all are happy and they all love giving birth, you know? So I think that's, I think that is a true testament to the program. You know, it's uh, it's been developed here over the last, you know, five to six years for sure. And, um, and it's, it's, yeah, I think it gets better and better every year. Laura Smuts, thank you so much for joining us today on the Healthy Woman Show here on WJR uh, and giving us a little insight into uh, midwifery. And I hope you have your track shoes ready because I think you might be needing them as we get into these summer months. You're going to be doing a lot of running around. Thank you for having me. We'll be back here on the Healthy Woman Show on WJR. It's Ask the Doc, and we'll have it for you when we come back. We're back on the Healthy Woman Show here on WJR with Dr. Jonathan Zayden, also his sidekick on most days, Jessica Rousset, who is the patient outreach coordinator. Jessica, thank you so much again for joining us. You always bring us a great segment called Ask the Doc. You are always busy talking with patients and asking them what they would like to have, uh, questions answered from the doctor and things that we really need to know and you'd like to share. So get us started here. Yeah, some of these Last are month, Marie, wasn't it easier? Last month, I thought it was easier than those first couple months. So uh, let's see what we got this month. Yeah, let's see. You never know. She might be reaching bag deep down in that <laughs> mailbag for something and good. Some of these are unique. So I'm, I'm curious to see how they're answered, but let's just jump right in. So the first one is, I'm tired all of the time. Google said that it could be my thyroid, which I thought that was funny how she worded that. What exactly is a thyroid and why could it be causing my tiredness? Um, that's a great question, actually. It's actually a better question than uh, than than uh, it may have even been when she was thinking about it. But, you know, she she has a question and an answer in that hypothyroidism or the lack of your thyroid gland to produce thyroid hormone can make you very tired. And it can be clinical or subclinical. And, it, and thyroid hormone is produced by a small gland that's right by your neck. And, and that gland is really your, is, is your keeper of your metabolism. If you don't have thyroid, you don't do very well. And so, you know, and if you have too much thyroid, you'll, you'll get some significant changes as well. So it's very important that that gland work functionally. What I see in patients, is not only is the gland sometimes affected by an autoimmune disease by, called Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which can attack the gland and make it sometimes high and sometimes low, depending on how it's being attacked. That's an autoimmune disease. There's also little antibodies that can uh, attack the thyroid. And when they, they, when they do that, they can stimulate it. And that's called Graves' disease. That's when people get hyperthyroid. And then there's a whole gamut of just the thyroid just stops working as well as it did. And, and that can affect people's overall met metabolic rate. And, that was, and that's what makes them feel tired. So the best thing you can do is, I think I, I answered the question of what the thyroid gland is, is get tested. If you read any common magazine, they always say, don't rely on the one doctor test, the TSH. You should get a full panel of tests if you're truly tired and you suspect thyroid. Then you got to test for everything because, you know, sometimes it could look normal, but there's other disease processes that you would miss if you don't get a full battery of testing. 
And never forget that you could have subclinical hypothyroidism. And if you have subclinical hypothyroidism, we can treat you with just a little bit of thyroid medicine and make you feel really, really great without making your levels too high at all. So I, I'd say that's the answer to that question. Awesome. That was great. All right. This next one is a topic that you love to talk about. And um, I, I think this will help a lot of women out there. All of our tests are coming back normal, but my boyfriend and I still cannot get pregnant. What could it be? Should I go see a fertility specialist? Well, there's a certain percentage of the population that have unexplained infertility. We just don't know what it is. Now, some of those people in the population really haven't been completely tested, right? So just because you have unexplained infertility doesn't mean that you've um, actually been uh, you know, tested appropriately. You could have, for example, you could be developing antibodies against your husband's sperm and have infertility. And we don't necessarily always test for that, right? Many people have unexplained infertility. They come to the office. They, their husband hasn't even had a semen analysis. It could be male factor. It might be him and not you. So that's another option. But I think the big one is, is that people that have disease processes, maybe that um, were previous, um, such as, you know, maybe they had an infection when they were younger and, and they got pelvic inflammatory disease. Now, when people talk about that, they always think that it has to be a bacteria that's sexually transmitted, but it could have been their own bacteria that caused an infection and causes scarring. They may not be having any symptoms, but that needs to be evaluated. And then there's disease processes that we talk about all the time. I think that's what you were alluding to. And that's endometriosis. People might have endometriosis and have a very inflammatory state in the pelvis. And that inflammation is causing them not to get pregnant. The inflammation is preventing the actual conceptional process. And so, you know, all of those things should be evaluated. So, you know, before you have unexplained infertility, you have to make sure that you've really gotten a thorough workup. And sometimes we just can't figure it out. And if we can't, that's when they go to the reproductive endocrinologist. And thank God we have those guys because, you know, and gals, because they're great and they do a great job. We have one of them that, that, that co-sponsors our show, Carol Kowalczyk. So, I mean, there's, you know, a lot of good things that, that reproductive endocrinologists do. As I always say, it has to be the right treatment at the right time for the right patient. And in this particular case, you want to make sure you've exhausted all the simple workups first, maybe even some a little bit more extensive ones like laparoscopy, where you look inside, make sure there's none of that scar tissue I was talking about, no endometriosis. And then if you still can't find anything, then it's time to go to the reproductive endocrinologist. All right. Next one, I'm in my 30s and my periods are still horrible. And horrible is all in caps. One doctor recommended that I should get an ablation, but my friend said I should just get a hysterectomy and be done with it. What is better? It really depends on why your periods are horrible. Horrible is a word in gynecology that can mean a lot of different things. Yeah. So the first thing is, if horrible is referring to I'm bleeding excessively, but I don't have pain, and I'm passing clots, and I've been in the emergency room, and I've had anemia, and they've talked about transfusing me, and I'm going to a hematologist for iron infusions. If that's what horrible is, and it's not associated with pain, then an endometrial ablation is a, is a good procedure, provided there's no pathology that would be contraindicated. For example, they don't have any cancer, so they need a full workup for that. I think the problem with ablation is that people have a tendency just to go to ablation without fully understanding why the patient's bleeding. So again, I'm using a differential diagnosis on the term horrible. Is it bleeding alone? And if there's no other pathology, ablation's great. If they're bleeding 
and they have other significant pathology, i.e. abnormal uh, pathology um, from a specimen. They have precancer cells that can cause heavy bleeding. Then, then you might want to proceed towards hysterectomy. Remembering that not everybody is a candidate for a hysterectomy. So we need to pay attention to that because some people in their 30s still want to have a baby. Mm, so if yeah. you want to have a baby, you have to make that decision up front. So, you know, this is a lot like any other project that we do. We have a little algorithm for it. And we say pregnancy or no pregnancy. Obviously, if you want to get pregnant again, an ablation or a hysterectomy are not the options for you. Okay. If you don't want to get pregnant, then it's ablation, hysterectomy, hormonal management. Sometimes it's a combination of the two. And, uh, and then if you absolutely don't want to get pregnant, you have a lot of pathology looking more towards hysterectomy. And if you're wanting, you know, you don't, I'm sorry, if you absolutely do not want to get pregnant and you, and you have pathology, then you look towards hysterectomy. And if you absolutely do not want to get pregnant and you're just having bleeding, then ablation would be a good option. All right. This question, there probably could be a lot of answers to it, but I thought it was interesting since everyone's on health kicks now. Um, but do you have any recommendations for supplements to be taking now that I'm in my 50s? Do supplements even work? I think supplements absolutely work. And, and you know, this is one of those things where, you know, people will go through a list and, you know, when they come into the office, <laughs> they have a, you know, they have a bag, you know, usually it's like a Kroger bag or, you know, one of these like flimsy little plastic bags and they just dump this amazing amount of stuff and they pick the one out that they just got. And they say, I just got this. This <laughs> happens so frequently. And they say, I just got this. Is this okay? And you read the back of it and it's got like 47 different ingredients in it. <laughs> and they say, what do you think? Do you think all those are okay for me? I said, well, first of all, I'd have to look at each and every one of them. Cause I, I, you know, we don't have enough time to go through each one of these, but the truth of the matter is, is that people want to be healthy. So, you know, if we were going to summate this and make it simple, people for their mental health want to do something. They want to achieve a goal. And one of the goals that people want to achieve is to keep themselves healthy. And if they get to that point in their time where they want to achieve that goal, then they want to do everything that they can. And supplements are a good way to do that. So you can use an anti-inflammatory if you have inflammatory conditions. You can use something that's a probiotic if you have digestive issues. You know, even, even when you can't metabolize certain things, a probiotic might allow you to do so, right? You can use certain enzymatic formulations if you can't tolerate things like lactose, right? All of those I would consider supplementary, right? We can live without them. We can avoid foods. We can do all of these things, but they help us a little. The problem with supplements, and this is really the only problem I have, is that supplements in, in great amounts can also be poisonous, right? I mean, if you take too much of anything, you can get sick from it. So you have to use it in moderation. And what some people don't understand is they take seven or eight formulated supplements, plus they're taking high doses of a specific type. And all seven or eight of those other supplements have that in it as well. And there's this additive effect. So it's very important that you kind of take a look at your supplements and find out what are you getting, what you're not getting, and then determine if those things, you know, piece by piece are going to be helpful for you. Do I agree with people taking supplements? Absolutely. Do I think it's going to cure everything? No. Do I think it's one thing to make your life a little bit better? Yes, I do. All right. And let's see. This one I thought was kind of interesting too. We haven't talked about this. It may be an easy one. Not sure. 
Um, I've noticed an increase in facial hair as I'm getting older. Is this due to menopause? Why is this happening and what can I do about it? The seat's getting kind of warm. I think this is a little longer <laughs> than the last segments here. So, all right, now we're talking about hot flashes and menopause. So um, let's, let's ask that question one more time. I've noticed an increase in facial hair as I'm getting older. Could it be menopause? Why could this be happening and what can I do about it? It, it can be menopause. You know, your hormones shift a bit as you get older, more towards an androgenic kind of shift. You stop producing estrogen and progesterone because those are the hormones needed to, to fulfill your reproductive capacity as a woman. And so as those androgens start to shift, you can get some small hair growth. Most people can deal with that just by plucking a small laser hair removal or so, so on and so forth. A lot of times diet can help that too. As long as you're, if you're healthier, you'll notice that people that have those, you know, syndromes um, typically, you know, also have some other characteristics. They might be a little bit heavier. They might have some other issues going on. So sometimes you can control some of that just by, you know, very much a, a healthy lifestyle, but some things are just outside of your control. They're just, they're just cultural and it definitely can be related to the menopause, but it's not the menopause per se. It's actually what menopause is. And that's a shift in your hormones from a more of a female hormone environment to more of a, a, a male hormone environment. Hmm, interesting. You know, and kind of just going off of that, one of the other questions I came across was, what's the difference between perimenopause and menopause? Well, that's, that's not simple, but I can, I can make it somewhat simple for our listeners because, you know, perimenopause is that time around, right? So, you know, if you have a uh, you know, a periumbilical hernia, you have a, a hernia around your umbilicus or your belly button, right? So it's, it's around the time of menopause. So peri is actually this time period, maybe a couple of years before your menopausal and a couple of years after your menopausal, where your hormones maybe have, you know, they've changed, but they haven't changed to very minimal like they will be when you're menopausal. And they haven't changed from where they were regular and predictable prior to being menopausal. When I say a couple of years, that period could last a long period of time, but you have to give it a time period. And I don't believe that it's defined. Okay. So menopause is defined as the cessation of menses for greater than 12 months with no other identifiable etiology. Meaning that if you stop having periods, but you, you're pregnant and you stop for a year and a half because you're pregnant, and you're breastfeeding, that's an identifiable etiology. But if you just stop having periods, that's how we define it. That was what we used for years and years and years. Now we have such sophisticated blood tests. When people come into our office here at Women's Excellence, I can test for every minuscule hormone and look at every little thing that's going on in their body from a hormonal perspective and really get a good picture of what they're doing. But back in the day, they didn't have that. So the difference between perimenopause and menopause is menopause is when it actually happens. And perimenopause is those few years before and after it occurs. Man, women's health is confusing. <laughs> Sometimes I see these questions and I'm like, oh, wow, I'm, I'm glad to know all this young in life, you know? Well, hey, you didn't give me any of the tough ones. I didn't have any of the sexual questions. I didn't nope, have any this of these, week. you know, the leakage, embarrassing questions and all of those things. But I have to tell you that, um, you know, I, I hope that we're able to help people when we do this segment. I think it was a, it was a great idea 
uh, that they came up with on the show, because I think that people really get their questions answered. And when they're in the office, they're talking to me about it. They're saying, I heard your yeah. answer on WJR, which is, you know, just shocks me. I don't, you know, sometimes you don't realize how many people are listening to both this and the podcast of these shows. Yeah, for sure. And actually, the very last question we have has to do with healthcare deductibles. Um, and, and we get this quite often. So I know we're going to dedicate the whole next segment to kind of talking about uh, meeting your deductible and what that means. Well, of course. I mean, that's why people ask that question, especially especially now because it comes to that planning segment. But I've done this before. I'll try to I'll try to shorten that up. Perfect. Jessica, thank you so much for joining us again for another segment of Ask the Doc. Great questions as always, and right from the the patients who see Dr. Zayden, so that even makes them better. Stay with us here on the Healthy Woman Show. We're going to give you a little insight into the healthcare benefits, things you need to be thinking about early in the year. Stay with us here on the Healthy Woman Show. We're back here on the Healthy Woman Show on WJR, and we're going to wrap up the show today to talk a little bit about health care benefits. Dr. Zayden, always interesting topic, but it is very complicated. I know in the last segment, Jessica had a question from one of the patients to say, what does it mean to reach your deductible? Is there anything my family and I should do now that our deductible has met, been met for this year? What does that mean? What's your advice for that? Well, Marie, it's a sign of the times when one of the most popular topics is healthcare benefits. But what it means to reach your deductible means that there's a certain amount of, of, of dollars that your insurance company and you sign up for. It may not be you, it could be your employer, it could be you yourself. So you make a choice on what your deductible wants to be or somebody makes that choice for you. And that those numbers, those dollars and numbers of dollars have to be spent by yourself before your healthcare starts to pick up certain services. In some cases, they have preventative services that you can get for free, even if you haven't spent any money with their plan, because they want you to stay healthy. But once you have something that's wrong with you, for example, you itch, you know, break your toe, or you you have a broken bone, or you have chest pain or something, those are considered, you know, problem type visits. And there's a deductible associated with that and the procedures that may be used to diagnose and the and the treatments that that you're using for them. And so when you've met your deductible, it means that more of the cost is going to go to the insurance company and not to you. Why is that important? Because managing your deductible can really help you with some of the things that you want to get taken care of in a very low-risk environment to you financially. And that's important because, remember, the end of your deductible year is oftentimes, the, the, you know, right at the end of the year, at December, it's not for every plan, but most plans, they end them on the calendar year. And so that's the time when you've probably spent the most money. So if you start getting bills for medical procedures, you really don't wanna get them in January. So if you start your care for a problem in January and you have not met your deductible, all of those, all those costs go to you. So you'd like to finish that up by the end of the year. That means that if you get something else that, you know, you have to use your health care, you don't avoid using it in January, February, March. But these elective procedures that you really want to get done, like bladder control, um, you know, uh, you know, things that maybe are, are tolerable, like prolapse disorders, pelvic pain, things like that. If you've already met your deductible, now is the time to work those things up. You know, even menopausal symptoms, because some of the labs that we drop can be expensive. 
So if you've already met your deductible, a lot of that's going to be picked up by the insurance company directly. And so, you know, you want to look at all those things. You want to look at your skin. You want to, you know, want to make sure that everything that you've been concerned about through the year, you might be able to get taken care of with very minimal out-of-pocket expense. And that's what really that's all about. And that's, and now's the time to really start assessing that and talking with your doctor about that. Especially now, because just like, you know, we used to be able to call somebody up and get something done in a week. Now it can take four to six weeks because not everybody's at full capacity. We're still under some COVID guidelines. There's still some surgical suites that aren't, haven't been fully opened and they've, they're operating, but not operating under full rooms. So there's a lot of differences in how we do things and you need to, you know, really plan ahead. So you got to think to yourself, it's already the end of May. So, you know, by the time you go in and see a doctor right now, if you had like, you know, for example, I say bladder control because I do bladder control, but, you know, pelvic pain, a menopausal problem. By the time you get your appointment, it's going to be probably mid-June. And then by the time you get, you know, your labs and get that back, it's going to be July, right? And then by the time you get titrated to your steady state, on, on hormones or whatever, if it's a menopausal problem, it may not get done for a while. If it's a surgical procedure like bladder control, it could take two months to schedule you. And right there, you're already at September and you're working in your post-operative period before the end of the year. Very important that you plan now, get your stuff done. I hear it every week, every year, it's the same. At the end of the year, I wish I would have done this earlier. I'm not gonna be able to fit it in. Dr. Zayden, before we wrap this up, let's give the listeners information on how they can get a hold of you. Go to us on the website, www.womensexcellence.com. That's womensexcellence.com. Or go to the live chat, which is in the right lower portion of of the website, and chat us. We'll get back with you. And thanks again for joining us for this edition of the Healthy Woman Show here on WJR. Always have some great information for us, Dr. Zayden. We'll see you again next month. The Healthy Woman Show has been presented by Women's Excellence.